0: If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn over to page 966 from our Pew Bible or Romans chapter 13 in your own Bible. For some of you, you don't need to turn a single page, you just need to swipe along as you're pulling out your phone or uh, your iPad or Droid or whatever else it is that you're using this morning. Isn't it grateful that we could have the Word of God in so many different ways these days, huh? You know, um, this past May, I completed pastoring for 25 years. Yeah. What that really means is that I'm old, you know. So, and, um, you know, and and over the years, I've had a lot of opportunities to go out to some pastors' conferences and retreats and things. And and by and large, when you go to those experiences, a lot of the theme is, and the theme that comes across is, we know pastoring's tough. You know, we know it's killing you, but hang in there. (laughs) You know, that's usually the theme that you get. And and the statistics are pretty, pretty deplorable, actually. The vast majority of pastors would tell you that ministering or serving in the church is harder on their families than any other way of life, that their own sense of self-esteem and worth is lower now that they're in the pastorate than when they started and those kinds of things. One out of five would tell you that they would do something else if they could, but they don't have any other job skills. So it's either pastor or work at McDonald's and they'd rather pastor. Now, that's not been my experience. I've enjoyed every phase of ministry that God's had me in and I've enjoyed the churches that God placed me in. But with that being said, you know, um, I will tell you that the hardest people that I've ever had to pastor were people who, who they, they did all the religious stuff. You know, the doors were open, they were there, they were involved in Bible study groups, they, they took their, their notch in terms of serving and those kinds of things. But by and large, they were just mean. They, they just didn't seem to like people, period. You know, and, and, and there's been a few of those spread out through my, my ministry. I mean, again, they, they, they give to the church. They show up for prayer meeting. You know, they come to Bible study. You know, they're there for worship regularly. Even if it's snowing, they're going to show up. If, if we're really desperate for somebody to cut the grass, they'll come and do it. But yet when you, when you see them interact with other people, they, they, they're just mean. They, they assume the worst of everybody. They think that you're, you're, they're, they're lying to you or they're going to let you down. You know, they're keeping score. Well, you know, you didn't show up one time when I was at the hospital, so that's it. You know, you're the worst pastor ever. You know, those kinds of things. I mean... And, and i got to tell you, that's really troubling to me. You know? And, and we've, we've struggled with this. I've struggled with this personally about how do you really serve those people off and on. But this morning, I want to use that as a context for us to, to remember that sometimes we can get so caught up in all of the religious stuff we're doing, all the Christian stuff we're doing, all the faith stuff that we're doing, that we forget where it all starts. And if we don't somehow or another master the basics... A lot of the other stuff can just become window dressing, and it's really missing its core heart. And that's why we've been in this series just here at the beginning of September, a series that I've entitled GC Squared. Though I was informed last week by one of our WPI students that you actually have to have brackets around GC, or it's actually just G, then C squared. You know, So (laughs) if you want to correct your outlines, you need to put brackets in there because we're talking about the great commandments and the great commission. So you got to have both the G and the C squared. So you want to put your brackets in there to make sure you don't come up with a wrong answer. It's all, all in good fun. <laughs> but and, and I'm not saying that we don't need to go out and really work in the You know, you go to Bible studies, you'll dig deeper in Ephesians, you'll learn how to pray better, you'll get involved. with, You know, my life group, we're going to work through the book of Acts so, alongside the sermon series we're going to have coming up and those kinds of things. And we do all this stuff, but we need to keep in mind that the foundation that it's all laid upon is a Great Commission and the Great Commandments. Now, last week we looked at the first of the Great Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that one verse incorporates everything that God has said to us about how we're supposed to relate to Him. You know, and just, I'm not going to go over the whole sermon, but just a couple things to remind you about. Love there is not a feeling. It is a relational obligation that we take upon ourselves in response to who God is and what God has done for us and in us. Just like we take on a covenant obligation when we get married, we say, this is the way I'm going to behave and act and treat, etc." you, no matter how I feel, loving God is that same kind of notion. It's not just when we feel like it. And the idea of God being one, love the Lord, your God, that idea that God is I am, that he's kind of just is, means that God has the right to self-define. We don't get to tell God what He's supposed to be like. God tells us who He is, and that's the God we're supposed to be in love with. And that's what we find in this Bible: God's revelation of Himself to us. But today we talk about loving one another. You know, several different places in the Scriptures, Jesus is approached and says, "You know, well, what are the? You know, talk about the law and the prophets. Tell, tell us what? How do you, How do I inherit eternal life? Or what are the greatest commandments?" And over and over again, Jesus affirms the fact. He says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself." And it has its roots back in Leviticus chapter 19, which believe it or not, love your neighbor as yourself is really a summary at the end of a long session. He's talking about all the different ways that you're supposed to treat and not treat your neighbor. And at the very end of it, he says, you know what? Just love your neighbor as yourself. And that truth continues on in a number of places throughout the Scriptures. We see it in the New Testament. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, it is the occasion for the teaching of the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I want to draw your attention to Luke to Romans chapter 13 this morning. Again, we're trying to master the basics. You know, we're going to we're going to go into our life groups and build relationships and we're going to study the word or we're going to learn some Christian skill or practice that we need to be good at or in those kinds of things, but it all comes back and it all builds on this foundation of loving God, loving our neighbor and going into all the world. And I want to read just verses 8 through 10 for you this morning. Because as I was studying this week and looking at the Scriptures, I was drawn back to this passage for a couple of reasons. But just listen to this passage. Do not know, do not owe anything, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are something, up by this love your neighbor as yourself love does no wrong to a neighbor love therefore is the fulfillment of the law now i want to assure you as you read this passage it's not that paul forgot the rest of the ten commandments okay you know, he only lists. you know the ten commandments have four commandments that relate to our relationship with god and six that relate to the way we're supposed to relate to one another he only quotes four he knows that there's more he just says, and then the other commandments, you know. I mean, he knows you're not supposed to lie and all, all kind of good stuff. But it's interesting. Often today, when you go to this passage of Scripture, the thing that everybody latches on to is, what does verse 8 say about having consumer debt? Do, don't owe anything to anybody. This is really talking about our ongoing responsibility to love others in the name of God. And what I'm, what I'm amazed at this text is, is that here's Paul. He's writing his most comprehensive presentation of the gospel to the Romans. It's a church he's never visited, a church he knows that is vital in the activity of God. It is built in the center of the universe at the time because everything happened out of Rome. And here is this church that's existing at the, at the hub of the wheel of the universe. And he wants to make sure they get the truth right. In chapter 12, he kind of shifts out of the theology aspect to how it applies. The so what kind of questions. And here he says, if you get all of that right, what that really means is that you need to love one another. And why is that so important? Because it fulfills the law. It sums up the law. It's really interesting. The word fulfilled there is actually used many times in the New Testament to refer to a prophecy that actually comes to pass. When the word of God was fulfilled when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of a virgin, it uses the word fulfilled. So it says that when you and I love our neighbor... The law, all that the law is supposed to accomplish is fulfilled in us. It uses the word summed up, which means to basically recapitulate, to restate. So you take all of the Ten Commandments, you take all the other laws that God has given us about how to treat one another, he says, and you could summarize that all up in one statement. Love the Lord your God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. It's it's amazing stuff. So how is it, you know, I just want, how is it that, Loving your neighbor summarizes everything about what it means for you and I to fulfill the law in terms of our relationships with one another. So that that's what I want to wrestle with this morning. And I want to g- just give you several reasons and uh, as to why this, the way I see this. And um, I apologize. Let me go down here and grab my outline so I can make sure that I give you all the right fill in the blanks. Because if not, I'll have a long line at the door saying what goes in this spot and what goes in that spot. <clears throat> now, there, I, I look at this text, and there's a lot more reasons that I'm going to give you, but I'm going to give you several that I think that you and I need to appreciate. So that as we are in this time of the year trying to kind of recenter our lives, get back into a routine, have the right rhythm kind of things, that you and I can freshly appreciate how important it is to love other people in the name of Christ. And the first thing that really struck me was that one of the reasons why loving our neighbors And if you want to bring in the story of the Good Samaritan here, where the neighbor is the one who has the resources to make a difference and actually makes the difference in the life of somebody else. So it's an active kind of term. The reason why loving our neighbors is is an expression of all that God's asked us to do is because loving other people is just really an irrepressible characteristic of the new heart that God gives us in Jesus Christ. The thing that always baffled me about these people that I've encountered in ministry who claim to have this powerful love for God, but really just don't like people that are just mean and ugly and untrusting and, and their being counter, say, well, you do this, this isn't me, and I'm never going to forgive you. Those, the thing always when God makes us a new creature in Jesus Christ, He gives us a new heart And built into that heart is just a natural instinct to love what God loves. There is this irrepressible characteristic imprinted on our hearts when we become new in Christ that we fall in love with what God loves. And guess what? God loves people and expresses that love actively. And just a reinforcing passage. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4 with me. 1 John is a little book towards the back of your Bibles, just before the book of Revelation. You're going to find the text that I want to point out to you today on page 1036, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Let me read just a couple of uh, points for you here, from verses 7 through 12. It says, Dear friends, meaning that these are people who are a part of the family of God. They're new creatures. They have this new heart. They're a part of of, of the Christian fellowship. Let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. If you know God, if you've been born of God, you love. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this: not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me summarize there just a little bit. When He says, "Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, other words, God loved us when we weren't the least bit lovable," we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and His love is perfected in us. There is this irrepressible nature that God has put into us, and it it demonstrates itself in loving other people. If that's not happening in our lives, then there's something wrong. I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how many meetings you show up for. I don't care how how many times you've read through your Bible. Any of that stuff. If you aren't falling in love with people. There's something wrong with your spiritual journey because having the heart of God leads us to love what God loves. Now, it's interesting that in our text in Romans, the word that Paul uses there for love, the way that we're supposed to love our neighbor, is the same word that God uses to describe His love for us. Biblically, there are three primary words that are used for love. One is the word eros, from which we get like erotic type of love. This is romantic love. There is the word phileo, which refers to, we get the idea of brotherly love, like the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So it talks about the kind of love that we have among ourselves as as friends. And then there's this word agape that the scripture uses about how God loves us. And it, it really is almost a word that's impossible to define. It's It, it certainly involves a sense of benevolence or of self-giving but but it's it's a deeper sense of having a self-originating sense of love we don't fall in love god doesn't fall in love with us because we're lovable we we might look at this flower and say wow it's really pretty i love that and we're attracted to it you know doesn't do much for me but i know for some of you you're into that kind of stuff and that's great but you know I'll love my 40 inch plasma this afternoon when the Patriots come on, you know, because we're attracted to it because of what it does. This is not that kind of love. This is the kind of love that loves simply because of the lover, not the object love. Uh, let me give you an example, and I've used this many times here, so let me just kind of flesh it out. You know, my, our, one of our children, like many kids, had an object they just fell in love with, and it was a little bear, but, uh, but yay, yay big, you know, and they just fell in love with this bear. And and so, everywhere we went, the bear had, Fluffy had to go. Fluffy had to go everywhere. Slept with Fluffy every single night. You know, poor Fluffy was gross by the end. I mean, he got three sets of clothes over his lifetime, got restuffed a couple of times, all the I think the only thing that was left that was original were the ears or something. I don't know. I mean, but there were times that this bear was flat out disgusting. I didn't even want it in the car. It smelled, He it wiped his knot on it, and drooled on it and dragged it through the ground and all this kind of stuff. And there wasn't anything about this bear that was the least bit lovable. But the reason our child loved it was because of the feelings they projected onto it. It came out of them, not out of the bear, you know? That's the way God loves us. What's interesting is that here, this is the way that God asks us to love others. See, it's a reflection of the fact that God's given us a new heart. Because we just don't love people anymore with brotherly love. Now we love them with this, un- this inconquerable sense of benevolence that no matter how rude, no matter how ignorant, no matter how annoying, no matter any of those kind, of, I'm still going to love you. Because it doesn't depend upon you, it depends upon me. Wow. Even the phrasing of it, he, he puts it in a present active participle. You didn't know you were coming to active to English class this morning. Let, let me summarize all this. This is a lifestyle. He's asking us to love people, not just in births. Okay, birth. okay, it's Thanksgiving season. Let's love people for a week. You know, it's Christmas. Let's love them for three weeks. Then we can, we can write it off maybe until we get to Easter, you know. And then we don't have to pay attention again until we get back. To th- That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about seven days a week. 24 hours a day, 52 weeks a year, loving people. It's a lifestyle because he is built into us this nature to love other people. And if that nature isn't emerging, there's something wrong with our faith. There's just something wrong with our faith. I, I got to tell you, you know, one of the things that struck me as I was working through this from, from, my, from my own perspective, from my own life, is, is how easy it is for me just to be consumed with everything that matters to me. But not really think too much about the needs, the feelings, the desires of others. It, it, we can become such a, a self-centric person without very much effort. And God's put us in this nature within us to say, No, 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 no! no. That's not the way it's supposed to work. A couple of other things that I want to point out to you. Another way that I see in which loving our neighbors as ourselves fulfills all of the law of Christ, all that God asks us to do in relationship to other people. One of the reasons it fulfills all of that is because it is a way in which God loves the world through us, how God loves the world through us. How is it that we are the salt of the earth that Jesus talks about in matthew five thirteen How is it that you and I are the light of the world? A city sit on a hill cannot be hidden? How is it that we do that? Do we invent something better than anybody else? Do we sing better than somebody else do we you know it, we do that because we love in a way that the world has never, ever seen. And then we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. For some of you, one of, some of, the, most, one of the most troubling passages of Scripture is Matthew 25. Because it, it seems to, to indicate that at the end of the age, when the time of judgment comes, we're going to get selected for the kingdom or not based upon what we've done. And we thought, well, I, I, I thought this was all about grace. For it's by grace that you are saved by faith. Not not what you do. And yet, when we read this passage from Matthew chapter 25, and if you want to read along, you can join in on page 839. This is what God says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And this is verse 31. And he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his, on his right, Come, you are, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For he said, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. And I was in prison, and you came and visited me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for, the one, for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And he goes along and he flips it. And he talks about those that, that don't feed the hungry, don't give a drink to the thirsty, don't take the stranger in. He says, You know, you didn't do it to these, and so. And he's not talking about work salvation here. I stand before you this morning and declare as clearly as I can, the only reason God intervened in our world in the person of his Son is because the only way that you and I can experience an eternal relationship with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to do that. And every single one of us needs to come to a place in our lives where we decide, am I going to believe or am I not going to believe? But what Jesus is saying here is that if you're one of the righteous, guess what? I minister to the world through you. And when you serve them, you actually serve me. Because of this new heart that I put within you, you reach out and you care. And God ministers. He loves the world through us. (laughs) The reality is, whether we like it or not, that other people outside of the church make up their minds what they believe about God through the way you and I act. And the most powerful things that they see us do is the way we serve others in the name of Christ. This is one of the reasons why as a part of our add one emphasis, which which never has gone away, it will never will go away, always fundamentally at the foundation of our faith, the way that we need to add to our faith is to to attend one, to be engaged in worship, be engaged in a small group Bible study, growing in Christ, learning how to love God more completely. But we also need to be serving in a ministry, giving ourselves away as a part of this new nature that God has put within us. But we need to give God away through our lives. And we do that as we love others. (laughs) There's one last truth that I want you to see. A little bit more complicated to see in this text, and we're going to move quickly. One of the things that Paul was convinced about, because he had seen it in action, it had always been the plan of God. When you and I love other people in the name of Christ, we open up the doors to be able to give away our faith. It creates gospel moments for us. It's really interesting. If you want to back up in the book of, at book of Romans and look at it a little bigger, chapters 1-11, through 11, he's talking about the gospel and how it relates to the world and to Gentiles and to the Jews. And when he brings it all to the end... He comes to chapter 12 and he begins to apply the reality and says, I beseech you, brothers, you know, as a part of the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice. He begins to describe how to do that. And he first of all talks about how you're supposed to relate inside the body. Then how you're supposed to relate at home. And then he talks about how you're supposed to relate to authority. And then he talks about how you're supposed to relate to your neighbors. And then in verse 11 of chapter 13, he says, you know what? Because the day's changing. We know that we are closer today to the return of Christ than we've ever been before. And with that, our behavior needs to change. And so at the front end, you have the idea of a living sacrifice. At the far end, you have the, the eschatological moment, the fact that the way the world sees all of this, And its impact of the return of Christ, that's all coming. And he says, and because of that, this is how you need to act in the world. You've got to be the right kind of church. You need to have the kind of right kind of homes. You don't need to become a problem for society. And the way that you love others ought to open up the door for you to be able to tell the story of who Jesus is because the day is getting closer. When you and I love God and love our neighbor as ourselves... It just opens up the door to be able to give our faith away, and you know it 's interesting uh, way back when when I first returned back to New England before we had any children, I had this notion i 'd go on and get a doctorate degree and that desire totally went out the window when Joshua was born. I'd rather change diapers than study French and German, so I just decided not to go forward with any of that. No, that was supposed to be a joke, though you guys didn't really laugh too much at that. I didn't, yeah, anyway. So, But I did take a class at B, BU one time, you know, working on a, uh, a, a, doctorate, a doctorate of theology, is what they called it. Just a couple of classes, and I remember one of them was on the debate over modern missions. And it was interesting to me that, that there was an assumption among the majority of the people in the room, that somehow or another to try to serve the needs of other people, but with that have a desire to lead them to Christ, was impure. It was it was an impure love, because somehow or another we had an ulterior motive. The only reason we were really trying to help them come up with clean drinking water, or have good sanitation, or access to medical care is because we wanted to convert them, you know? Like we we're trying to sell them a Chevy or something, you know? And and, and it was interesting, the few the, the few of us who were evangelicals in the room, our, our feedback was, how in the world can you love people completely if you don't want them to know Christ and the salvation he brings. And and, and the way that we serve people, meet their needs, it opens up the doors. And, and you can see this at work at Pleasant Street with a food ministry that they do and a clothes closet and a baby boutique and etc., as they minister to people's needs, the door of opportunity to serve them opens up, and they get to share the gospel. It's one of the reasons why we're constantly resourcing that, collecting clothes and moving it down, and etc. Love, therefore, Paul says, is the fulfillment of the law. I, I want to leave you with one concluding thought, and, and I got this in your notes. You and I, we need to be open to the reality that loving our neighbors is far more radical than we've ever imagined it to be before. I, 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 somehow or another, I think it's so easy for us to settle. Well, you know, I'll bring a plate of cookies to the new neighbor when they move in down the street, you know, and I'll cut my neighbor's grass when they have their ankle operated on. And, and it's the simple things that we do. None of those are bad, but a radical reorientation that allows us to love our enemies, to feel as passionate about serving their needs as you do your own spouse, is a radical type of loving your neighbor. And that's why it took a radical conversion to Christ and a radical act of God in intervening in the world in the first place to give us a brand new nature with a brand new heart that literally allows us to love our neighbors as God loves them. And so it's all fulfilled. It's all summed up in the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Father, thanks for the word today, I think. Because if we're honest with this passage of Scripture... We're honest with what you're saying to us. It's a a life-altering kind of journey. So Father, we pray that one that we'd stay teachable. God, that we wouldn't get distracted and that we'd be open to you doing some marvelous things in our lives as we trust in you. For this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let us stand and sing a final word to the Lord who loved us first. And as we sing, I invite the rushers to come forward and receive our offering.